In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Whatever you think about Jesus, you have to admit that Jesus made a dramatic impact on history. Before the turn of the century, a Newsweek article stated, after 2,000 years, the centuries themselves are measured from the birth of Jesus. At the end of this year, of course, 1999, when this article came out, calendars in India and China, like those in Europe, America, and in the Middle East, Middle East will register the dawn of the third millennium, which is just to say that around the globe, the world is measured by the birth of Jesus. Using the broadest definition possible, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. I mean, what is the number one selling book of all time? The Bible, right? Jesus is even highly regarded in other religions. For example, the Quran teaches that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was born of a virgin, and that he performed miracles. It does record that. It does say that. Although, of course, the Quran denies the cross and the resurrection. But it does affirm that Jesus made a dramatic impact on history. Even the Dalai Lama, the leader of the Tibetan Buddhist, has said that Jesus reached a high state of enlightenment. Some Hindus view Jesus as Satguru, or a true teacher. Make no mistake, Jesus has made a dramatic impact on history, which seems like reason enough to want to know more about who Jesus is what Jesus taught, and why he made such an impact on history. Of course, it's very possible, even common, to accept that Jesus did make an impact on history and yet fail to see why this is true. It's one thing to say that Jesus was a social reformer. It's another to say that he's the Savior of the world. It's one thing to say that Jesus was an inspiring teacher, It's another to say he's the perfect son of God. It's one thing to say Jesus gave us an example of self-sacrifice. It's quite another thing to say that he was the final sacrifice. It's one thing to say that Jesus is an important religious figure who died 2,000 years ago. But it's another thing to say that he is the risen and ascended Lord who will soon, soon return to judge the earth in righteousness. For all those who highly esteem Jesus, if Jesus is anything less than Messiah, the Son of God, the only way to heaven, and the rightful king over everyone and everything, well, then they've fallen short. John 7, as you know, we're studying John 7 in, right now at our church here. In John 7, we find divided opinions about Jesus, which is to say in this chapter, there's a growing conflict in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, his ministry, you might say, is in crisis at this point in the story. Jesus stays in Galilee for some time because the Jews in Judea were seeking to kill him. The opposition to Jesus is on an incline, you might say. In chapter 4, verse 44, John tells us that Jesus was rejected in Galilee, which is kind of his hometown, his stomping grounds, as I've said. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, 
John tells us that the Jews in Judea were seeking to take his life. So Galilee is the northern region of Israel, and Judea is the bottom region of Israel. So from the top to the bottom, Jesus is facing opposition. In chapter 6, we discover that the members of his family are questioning his ministry. And in chapter 6, verse 71, we find that even some of his closest friends, one of the twelve, is going to betray him. Thus, as the curtain unfolds, or as the curtain opens in John chapter 7, there's uncertainty about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus will have to answer the critics and affirm both his identity and his mission. And we will begin to see these answers in chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, which is our passage this morning. And with that, if you would, please stand, as is our pattern here at Rosedale Bible Church, for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you. Our message this morning is titled, as you can see, Answering the Critics, and it's the first of two messages. This is part one. And both messages have the same big idea, and the big idea is this. Jesus answers the critics with four assertions that affirm his identity and mission. Four assertions that affirm his identity and mission. This morning we'll see the first of We'll see two of those in verses 14 through 24, and then next week we'll see two more in verses 25 through 36. If you, were, if you were with us last week, you know that the Feast of Booths is at hand. That's kind of the context for this passage. This feast was one of three that required the attendance of the Jewish men and was the most important feast of the three primary feasts for the Jews. It was during this festival that the Jews would camp out in tents, kind of around the, the temple walls and around the city. They would camp out in tents uh, to celebrate God's protection and preservation during the Exodus. As you can imagine, the city of Jerusalem would have been teeming with people at this time. There would have been people everywhere. In our study last week, we learned that Jesus used this festival to demonstrate not that he is on anyone else's timetable, but that he is on God's timetable. 
That was the point of our message last week. When his brothers wanted Jesus, wanted him to enter the city with pomp and circumstance, Jesus had other plans. In fact, Jesus skipped the opening ceremonies for this feast and showed up right in the middle of the feast. We read that in verse 14 as we opened our text. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. While Jesus chose to avoid the throng and route to the festival, he had no qualms with going public with his ministry as we see here. In fact, you might remember that Jesus has already been to Jerusalem twice. And in both times, he, w- he did some very public things. You remember in John chapter 2, he went into the, ta- the temple and he turned over the tables. And then in John chapter 5, he returned to Jerusalem again, and that is where he healed the man who was paralyzed, as this text talks about, and he created all kinds of uh, attention by healing that man uh, in Jerusalem. And so, here he is again doing a public thing, except this time, Jesus is going to teach. So, we can imagine as Jesus enters into the temple area, he likely finds a porch or some balcony, and he takes a seat. Of course, being seated is the kind of practice of the day for teachers, and so he takes a seat and he begins to teach. He begins to teach. You can imagine, as I try to imagine these things, that his, the 12 were probably close around him and, and maybe some other disciples, and, and soon enough, crowds begin to gather around Jesus. I imagine it didn't take long for these crowds to include lots of the opponents of Jesus, the Jewish ruling class. They find their way into the group. John doesn't tell us what Jesus taught. He doesn't even tell us how long Jesus taught. But what he does tell us is that these Jews step in and they begin to criticize him. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? First thing we have to know, we should know about this response is that it's, of course, not a neutral response. In fact, it's quite derogatory. This idea, this, this way that this is put, this man, this fellow, is very derogatory. It's an insult. Furthermore, the question charges Jesus with incompetency and aims to discredit him. This man has no learning. And, of course, they didn't pull the man aside to talk to him. They didn't pull Jesus aside to talk to him. But what do they do? They offer this publicly for all the audience to hear, for the listeners to hear. So they're seeking to discredit Jesus before his audience. Behind the question is the assertion, don't listen to this imposter. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no credentials. He's never studied in any of our Jewish schools. Now, in the days of Jesus, most Jews probably knew some parts of the Bible. The Bible was read in the synagogues. People were exposed to Scripture. They had it there. They could read, lots of people. That being said, to carry on a sustained discourse in the matter of the rabbis, to quote significant amounts of Scripture, to explain the meaning of Scripture would have been unprecedented. You remember Nehemiah the book of Nehemiah and Ezra there stands before the people and he, he gave the sense of the word. He made it clear. He preached, essentially, 
to, to do that would have been unprecedented. Only the rabbis would have done that. Furthermore, in this day, Jesus' day, the age did not prize originality or inherent authority. That is, authority was passed down from rabbi to rabbi through ordination. It was as if the authority of Moses and the teaching of the law was preserved through the generations with each successive generation, or uh, with each successive ordination, you might say. These rabbis demonstrated this preservation and their ordination by citing other rabbis. That's what they did in Jesus' day. As a result, many rabbis, of course, became more versed in the study of traditions and what the rabbis taught than they did in the actual Word of God. You remember when Paul talks about his credentials in Galatians, he talks about being zealous for the traditions of his fathers. That's how he kind of demonstrates that he was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was zealous not about God's Word, but he was zealous for the traditions of the fathers. He studied those other rabbis. Now, the problem, not a problem for us, but it's a problem for them. The problem with Jesus is that he's not passing down religious tradition. That's not what he's doing. He's passing down a different kind of tradition, you might say. The Father's tradition, if you want to put it that way. He's delivering true religion. That's what Jesus is doing. You remember the way that Jesus taught the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount? You remember the formula he uses there? You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, but I say to you, Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This teaching formula, you have heard it said, but I say to you, is totally foreign in Jesus' day. With this kind of teaching, Jesus is really claiming a unique kind of authority. That being said, the instructions from Jesus are actually not His. <laughs> They're God's. They're God's instructions. And so here we have the first of four assertions that affirm the identity and mission of Jesus. And it's this, His instructions are God's. His instructions are God's. Look at verses 16 through 18. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus says. <clears throat> As it turns out, Jesus' teaching does have an origin. That origin, again, is not these religious fathers or tradition or anything else. It's the sender, you might say, the one who sent Jesus. And Jesus has made this claim multiple times. In fact, one of the things that Jesus says over and over again in the Gospel of John is that the Father sent him. He makes that abundantly clear. Chapter 5, verse 36 is one good example 
he says, for the works that the Father hath given me to accomplish, excuse me, uh, he says, yeah, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. This kind of language is all over the Gospel of John. In chapter 6, verse 57, as the living Father sent me, he says, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Furthermore, Jesus actually accepts the teaching practices of the day in some sense. However, he didn't base his teaching on the chain of human reasoning or the, the chain of human teaching, the, the, this idea that rabbis were ordin, ordinated and they were passed down or through ordination. He doesn't fall into that practice. Rather, his teachings are rooted in his heavenly Father. And in verse 17, we see Jesus insists that there's actually a moral dimension to accepting his teaching. There's a moral dimension to this. Where the rabbis might debate the merits of this or that tradition, Jesus is saying his teaching must be received by faith. What Jesus says parallels Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 2.14. You know the passage. The natural person, Paul writes, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They are folly to him, Paul says. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually appraised. The natural person cannot understand the things of God. Not truly understand them. There's a spiritual component, a moral component, you might say, of actually understanding the truth of God's Word. And that comes out in this passage. There's a faith commitment required to rightly understand the teachings of Jesus. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What does Jesus mean in saying, if anyone's will is to do God's will? He's saying, if anyone, of course, anyone, praise the Lord, if anyone would humble themselves before his teaching and humbly seek to understand and obey, he would be granted assurance and clarity. Don Carson says, when we take the step of faith, when we accept the truth of Christ's teaching, he says, God then fills the seeker's horizon. He grants us knowledge when we believe. This kind of faith commitment matches our study from two weeks ago, if you were with us. Remember the words of Peter from John 6 in Peter's confession. Remember Jesus asked that question of the twelve, do, do you want to go as, away as well? When all, all his disciples were leaving Jesus because of his teaching, do you want to go away as well? And what does Peter say? Lord, to whom should we go? We have the words of eternal life. And then importantly, to my point... In verse 669, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I argued that that was important. Belief preceded knowledge. I have believed and, I, and we have come to know that you are the Son of God, the Holy One of God. Kendall actually helped me with this when, I, when I, we worked our way through that. He made the point, he reminded me that where the Gospel of John focuses so, much, focuses so much on belief, of course, John wrote other, other things, right? 
he wrote his, his epistles, so you know 1 John. Well, if you go to 1 John, is 1 John really about belief or knowledge? Well, 1 John is all about knowledge. It's, like, it's as if John gives us this wonderful gospel that focuses on us believing and putting our faith in Jesus, and then he supports it with this letter, this epistle, 1 John, in which he talks about knowledge. If you were to, this afternoon, you're probably going to want to take a nap after you eat, but if you, if, if you, if you actually went and, and looked at 1 John, and you circled every time he says no to know something, it'd be overwhelming. 1 John chapter 5, I write these things. You remember, why did John write the gospel? So that through those signs, we might believe. The signs are written so that we might believe that Jesus is God, that he's the Holy One of God, and that we would have life in his name. Well, why does he write his epistle, 1 John? I write these things to you that you, that to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He supports belief with knowledge. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. 1 John says over and over, we know. The Gospel of John says, believe. Again, belief precedes knowledge. Imagine you come upon an old house. As you pace around the house, you move from window to window. As you peer through the windows, you assess what's in the house. You look through the, the dirty windows and through the dusty curtains, and you can only make out so much of what's inside. You see furniture, maybe some knickknacks, but you have no real knowledge of what's inside. From such a vantage point, it would be foolish, dare I say, immoral for you to speak about the items in the house. What must we do to, to speak confidently about the items in the house? I was a troubled youth. I don't know about you. <laughs> Throw a rock through the window. Break down the door. Find our way inside. That way... We put faith, we believe in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we can know what's inside the house. It's the only way. It's God's way. This is how God gives us confidence that we, about the items in the house we have to believe. Don Carson again. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. You must put your faith in Him. I know there's a mountain of books that speak to the veracity of Scripture, the truthfulness of, of Jesus. Evidence for, for faith is, is long and far. There's all kinds of evidence, and I'm not speaking against any of that. All that is valid and good. But at the end of the day, a mountain of books is not going to convince us that Scripture is God's Word, and that Jesus speaks the truth. What's going to convince us at the end of the day is belief, is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, because the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. He needs to be awakened through belief. 
In the end, the litmus test for Jesus is not our intellect or human reasoning. It's the actual experience of letting God's will move our will. It's the experience of faith. It's what Jesus is calling us to. It's what John is telling us to do over and over and over again in this book. Believe. Verse 18, Jesus moves from the teaching to the teacher. Verse 18 says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. It's, a, it's an axiomatic statement. It's a maxim. It's a truism, you might say. If anyone speaks from his own authority, well, he seeks his own glory. We can understand that. But this is not the case with Jesus. Jesus is not a charlatan. He's not some kind of religious person that's trying to trick people. He doesn't have mixed motives. Rather, Jesus can be trusted because his motives are unmixed. He seeks the glory of the Father. That's what he seeks. You remember what he said of the, the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23? They do all their deeds to be seen by others, Jesus said. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And a, a phylactery is this box. These Jews would put boxes on their head. Maybe you've seen this. And they put a piece of scripture inside that box. And they would, of course, it's an external way of saying, d declaring to the world, look how holy I am. I have God's word on my head in a box. And it's a big box. They made their phylacteries broad and the, the coats, you know, the, on their coats, the fringes of their garments long so, as this external act of piety, declaring to the world, look how holy I am. Jesus says, they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplace and being called rabbis by others. They just do these deeds to be seen by others. Paul tells us that false teachers' aim is to make a good showing in the flesh. They boast according to the flesh, he says. On the contrary, Jesus never sought his own glory. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was gentle and lowly in heart. False teachers are materialistic. What are, what are we told of Jesus? He had nowhere to lay his head. False teachers are selfish and demanding, but Jesus washed his disciples' feet. A slave duty. The lowliest duty one could do in that culture. Now to this point, verses 17 and 18, Jesus has been kind of on a defensive position, but in verse 19 there's a little bit of a transition and he moves from the defensive to the offensive. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Of course, the Jews took great pride in the law of Moses. They congratulated themselves. They believed they could rightly keep the law. They saw the law as attainable. Yet, receiving the law and keeping the law are two different things, very different things. And as Jesus will argue in this verse, in the verses that follow, these Jews not only failed to keep the law, but they failed to even understand the law. Now, the second question from Jesus, why do you seek to kill me, really strikes at the heart of the issue. If they're following, 
he's really turning the knife here. The Jews were using God's law to justify murder. We're using the very law of God to justify his death, to come after, to come after him, to seek to kill him. They were plotting to murder the one sent from God with the very law of God. It's chilling. Crowds respond in verse 20. Crowds answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now, this crowd here is likely these pilgrims that have come from far and wide. Remember, I said this feast, you know, men had to come to, to this feast three time, for three feasts, and this is one of those feasts that the men had to travel to this feast. And so you have lots and lots of people there in the city. This crowd wouldn't have known what the locals known would have known that Jesus was being persecuted by the religious leaders of the day. In fact, if you look over at chapter 7, verse 25, you see how this difference kind of comes out. Some of the people of Jerusalem, it says, therefore said, is not this man whom they seek to kill? The locals knew that these religious leaders were trying to seek to kill Jesus, but the crowds didn't know, and so they're asking the question, who's seeking to kill you? What's going on? Now they say, you know, they ask the question or sit and make the statement, you have a demon. I don't think we should take this literally. I think this is something like saying, you're insane. I don't think they actually believe that he was possessed by a demon. You're out of your mind, is what they're saying. Now, of course, these crowds will eventually declare and cry out to crucify him. But at this point, they're just wondering, what is this guy talking about? You must have a demon. Now, whatever we think about the crowds and their response, Jesus doesn't really seem to pay much attention to them, and he just keeps moving along. He moves right into the second assertion that will affirm his identity and mission. In the first verses, verses 16 through 19, I told you that uh, he asserts his instructions are God's, and then in verses 21 through 24, Jesus will assert that his actions are good. His actions are good. Look down at verses 21 through 24. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." Now, this work that Jesus is speaking about, of course, is the healing of the paralyzed man from John chapter 5. You weren't with us. I'll just read that, bring that back to your memory. And Jesus was at another feast. We don't doesn't tell us what feast it was, possibly the Feast of Booths from the year before. But Jesus is there in chapter 5, verse 5, and it says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And then it tells us there, John tells us now that day was the Sabbath, which led to all kinds of trouble for Jesus. Now, 
Jesus says marveled. I, didn't, I did one work and you all marveled at it. As that chapter demonstrates, it wasn't that they marveled at the healing. Really what they marveled at was that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. That's what they were marveling at. How could he heal a man on the Sabbath and make him pick up his bed and walk? He's breaking the law. Why would he do that? Their focus was the, the restrictions of the law, not the actual healing. Of course, they should have been rightly amazed, and they should have rightly marveled at that miracle, because that miracle demonstrated and proved that Jesus was actually the Messiah. So, verses 22 and 23, Jesus builds upon verse 19. You remember verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? He builds on that, and he he says in verse 22, Moses, now speaking to the law, gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well? Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now this is not an accusation of wrongdoing. This is what the law actually said. The law states in Leviticus 12, 3, that circumcision is to be done on the eight, eighth day. And this overrides the Sabbath. So, if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, it's not that the Jews are to say, or the, the law says, nope, we can't do it, we're going to circumcise on the ninth day. No. You circumcise on the eighth day. So, as we'll see, circumcision is greater, you might say, than the Sabbath. It's important, important to understand this, that this idea of giving and receiving. I think that's very important here. It says, it says that Moses gave circumcision. And in verses 23, Jesus says, a man, a boy, receives circumcision. So there's a giving and a receiving. Circumcision is a gift. Moses gave it. It's a blessing. It's important. It was a mark that distinguished Israel from all the other nations. It was a sign of the covenant that Israel had with, that God had with Israel. It was so important, as I'm saying, that it actually outshined the Sabbath. That's how important it was. Now, Jesus makes the point again in verse 23. If on, the man, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? If Moses allowed such a gift, gift to be received on the Sabbath, how can you stand against the gift that I have given? If Moses allowed a small part of the body to be healed, how can you stand against me who have helped a, a man's whole body to be healed. That's his point there. It's the logic behind what he's saying. Jesus wasn't standing against the Sabbath, as they said, they thought. He was arguing that his actions in some ways actually fulfill the, the Sabbath. They speak to the heart of the Sabbath. That it was a day to have good things. That circumcision, a blessing, could actually happen on the Sabbath. It was, Moses gave it to us. It was a sign of the covenant. How much greater would it have been 
for a man's whole body to be healed. And so, verse 24 says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. It's a general rule, of course. Again, this is axiomatic as well. But here Jesus is speaking to the specific case. Righteous judgment would see no violation in a man carrying his bed on the Sabbath. Even further, righteous judgment would see this as an act, as a demonstration of the grace of God. They couldn't see it. I think there's a valuable lesson to be learned from this second assertion from Jesus. How often are we guilty of judging, as Jesus says, by appearances and not with right judgment? These Jews were blinded by their preconceived notions of the law and its function. And this, of course, they used as a badge. They measured themselves by their own measurement of the law. In modern parlance, they, they found their identity in their own interpretation of the law. And Jesus challenged that identity. When Jesus challenged that identity, they failed to remain teachable. When it became clear that their identity was propped up with error, well, they failed to make an adjustment. This is always the danger when we attach our identity or our understanding to anything other than Christ or anything other than the Word. Well, I believe tradition, creeds, and denominations have their place. Certainly they do. You and I have to guard, against, guard ourselves against appealing to such things over the Word of God. We never first appeal to tradition. We never first appeal to a creed. We never first appeal to a denomination or anything else. Fill in the blank. Our first appeal is always to Scripture, to what Jesus said, to Christ. We have to remain teachable. We, we shouldn't be afraid of admitting we are wrong. We shouldn't be afraid of changing our minds. At the end of the day, this is probably the biggest hang-up for these religious Jews. They failed to change their minds. They failed to admit that they were wrong. They failed to remain teachable. They failed to accept that His instructions were God's and His actions were good. Couldn't see it. And at the end of the day, this is often, dare I say, our biggest hang-up or our biggest problem. We fail to change our minds. We fail to admit we are wrong. And we fail to remain teachable. And so it was this that prevented the Jews, prevented the crowds from believing or accepting that this was God's instructions, that Jesus' instructions were God's, and that His actions were good. Some closing thoughts here. You might know of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a man who was persecuted during the Nazi regime and for being a Christian, essentially, and was thrown into prison. Well, he famously said, maybe you've heard this quote before, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Paul said, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. When we clear the fog of self-help, <laughs> clear the fog of self-esteem, when we move from the milk 
to the meat, we'll see that the Christian life is a crucified life. Christ has called us, as Bonhoeffer says, to come and die. Of course, many have given their physical lives for Christ. There are martyrs that have done that, certainly. They have lived this truth out in a very physical way, yet this charge isn't to die a crucified death, but to live a crucified life. How might the opponents of Jesus done such a thing here in our passage? Well, Jesus said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. As I've already said, it's a faith commitment. It's believing. I think that's what Jesus means when he said, if anyone's will is to do God's will. And this is where the crucified life begins. It begins with faith. It's faith in God's will, not in our own. Even stronger, it means we put to death our will. We murder our will. We take all our questions to the Word of God. We run all of our ideas, our traditions, our creeds, our denominational thinking, whatever that is, we run it all through the grid of Scripture. What does God's Word say? As Jesus said in verse 18, then and only then can we rightly say that we have found the truth. The opponents of Jesus needed a faith commitment. And from here, it says, they need to not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. These two go hand in hand. That's why I believe they're both in this passage. For when we take an act of faith, when we put to death our own will, well, we're given clarity to the will of God. Number one, we'll know whether the teaching is from God. And number two, then we'll be able to judge with right judgment. We believe. I guess maybe there's three acts there. We believe, we know that the teaching is true, and then we'll be able to judge with right judgment. But it all starts with a faith commitment, by believing. It always starts there. That's how we find our way into the crucified life. Of course, these words from Jesus, verse 24, also apply to ourselves. That is, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Whether judgments, whatever judgments we make of other things and people, we must be circumspect even of our own character, even of our own lives. We must never forget the Lord, as it says, looks on the heart. We must judge ourselves with right judgment. This is, of course, why we practice spiritual disciplines. We're in God's Word. We're praying. We're being held accountable by God's people. We're connected to a local church. All of this is important. If we're going to judge ourselves rightly, we need each other to do this. Think about the whole of John 7, as we'll see, as we've already kind of seen last week and this week and then in the coming weeks, even into chapter 8, you might say. Really, the, the whole of this section of John raises the question, are we going to stand with Jesus? 
with the divided opinions and answering the critics and all of these different things that are said about Jesus in these passages, are we going to stand with Jesus? That's the question that these chapters want us to answer. It'd be naive for us to think that the good news of the gospel is going to warm every heart. Oh, I wish it would. It would be naive to think that if people simply understood the truth, truth correctly, if I could somehow just put it in a nice package, that if you just understood it, well, then you'd accept it and be converted. It's audacious to think that the world, that people are open vessels just waiting to be filled with the truth of God's Word. We've already learned much about what the world is like in this book. You remember in John 3, 19, the light has come into the world, the true light, that is Jesus, and people did what? They loved the darkness rather than the light. Yet, and I'll leave you with this, friends, God is moving. God is moving. You know, this is the most dangerous thing in the world. It is so dangerous because it penetrates into our hearts and it will not let us go. It will bring us to our knees every time. It is a powerful, powerful thing like nothing in this world. Remember we, where we opened with, right? The manifold wisdom of God is on display right here at 1600 Rosedale Highway. It's happening God's Word is moving because God's Word is open. And our, our lives are humbly bowed before His Word, saying, "If God's, I want to do Your will, Lord. I believe. Now teach me. Gary Burge writes, There are men and women in whom God is moving, who have had the courage to step near the light, to probe its truth, and to question the reality of the darkness. Men and women who confess their ignorance, sin and willfulness with God's help. And then he says, and I love this, potential saboteurs on the world stage willing to pry open uncomfortable questions. This is what God's word will do. It will pry open uncomfortable questions. Questions in my heart. Questions in yours. So the question for John chapter 7, and the question you have to consider, we have to consider as we move forward is this, are we going to stand with Jesus? I hope that you will stand with Jesus. Joel.